this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Welcome to the next bonus episode of the Book Riot Podcast. Technically, episode 329.5. We've just moved, not Rebecca and I, just me, me and my family, have moved to a new house, so I've, I've jerry-rigged a podcast situation. It is very much a... It reminds me of the old startup-y days where I was in a closet with a, like a baby in my lap with a bottle in her mouth and like very, <laughs> very, very, very much uh, oh, stringing it together. Days. Good old days here. So, uh, listener, you may hear some background construction noise. We're having some work done in the house, which is why I'm home, so things can proceed. But we wanted to continue proceeding with our fall bonus episode season this time where, I don't know, it's kind of a retrospective, a reconsideration, just taking some time to We're revisit um, the interpre- um, Interpretive Maladies by Jhumpa Lahiri, which came out in 1999 and went on to become a contemporary classic. I think that's one thing that I was reaffirmed for me that in a culture way, in a sales way, and then in an artistic way, mm-hmm. I feel like it all applies still. I, 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 I think it does I, I think too. my overall take is it's as good as I remembered, I think. It's different than I remembered a little bit. I'm older now, which is how mm-hmm. time works, but <laughs> it really matters, and we'll get into this a little bit, I think, for where the, a lot of the characters are in their lives. I've, I've skipped over them. I was much younger than most of the main characters when I read this. You know, I, I know I read it either right before or right after it won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, so I was 21-ish, and then... Now I'm 41, because that's also how math works. And a lot of the characters, and we'll talk about the reasons for this, are in their early to mid to late 30s, the main characters. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're, for reasons I think is also historically important, that's never really touched upon in the the book. Interestingly apolitical in a lot of ways, the book. It um, is. Which we can talk about too. But there's a reason that the people are coming to America from India and Pakistan at this time and at these ages which are really important. But then my own perspective has changed radically, as I'm sure uh, it's changed for you as well. But I was really glad to revisit the book. Um, Very, very glad not to have to hold my nose and reread it. Really from the first, which I'm sure we'll spend a lot of time talking about the very first story, which is just a hammer strike Mm -hmm. um, of a story. But all the way through, really found it enjoyable, really found that it held up. Um, Rebecca, what do you think? I had that same experience. That first story is the one that I was referring to when we sort of teased this last week, that I I remember it as being one of my favorite short stories ever. Um, And I have definitely pitched it, apparently incompletely, (laughs) having revisited it now to people of like, here's, you have to read this book and here's this great story that it begins with. Mm -hmm. Um, I was, I think it has just so many timeless qualities and you're right that this the characters and the stories take place in a very specific time frame and at specific ages for good reasons but the stories themselves exist mostly out of time and place in or exist out of pop culture like there are a few references to characters you know making phone calls um like you know sitting on the floor of their house making a phone call (laughs) on a phone that has a cord there's at least one reference to an answering machine And so you can see the ways that these stories would be different in 2019 with cell phones, but they would, and the internet and all of the above. Waiting six weeks for airmail from India probably wouldn't be quite the same now with email. Yeah, but they really wouldn't be that different. And the ways that they would be different are not, wouldn't change the meaning or the substance of the stories. And for a book that's been around for 20 years to stand up in the way that this book does and the course of the last 20 years has had so much change, I think is really remarkable. Um, I had a very similar experience to what you were describing of like, I was, I think, let's see, I was um, 18 in the year 2000 <laughs> when this won the Pulitzer. And I read it a few years later when I was 21 or 22. And 
coming to it now at 36, I was like, wow, these characters are all younger than I was expecting yeah. them to be. Like when I read this, they I seem so much older. Yeah, I yeah. encountered them as so much older than I was. And, um, you know, continually being like, ah, she's talking about this person and they're only 29. Like, mm. ah, 29. It was <laughs> <laughs> such an interesting experience. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books for Young Adults. From number one New York Times bestselling author Jennifer L. Armentrout comes a book I have to tell you about. It's Half-Blood, and it follows Alex and her mom who have spent years on the run from The Covenant, a school where their pure descendants of gods hone their powers and half-mortal teens train to kill demons for them. When her mom is murdered, Alex has two options. She can become a servant for the pures or work twice as hard to catch up in her training. The second option seems easier, but it gets a little complicated, you see, when pureblood Aiden becomes her personal trainer. So falling for Aiden isn't her biggest problem, surprisingly. As demons close in, she must fight to stay alive, even while others around her are dropping dead. So again, Jennifer L. Armentrout does the thing when it comes to romance, fantasy, adventure, all those things. Other books are Blood and Ash, A Shadow in the Ember, all those good things. Make sure to check out Half-Blood by Jennifer L. Armentrout. And thanks again to Bloom Books for Young Adults for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Hachette Audio. Three years ago, sports agent Myron Balatar gave a eulogy at the funeral of his client, renowned basketball coach Greg Downing. So why, you may ask, is Greg now being placed at the scene of a double, not a singular, but a double homicide? I also wonder. So Greg Downing, who Myron gave a eulogy for, is a suspect and Myron needs some answers. So Myron and Wynn, longtime friends and colleagues, set out to find the truth, but the more they discover about Greg, the more dangerous their world becomes. Secrets, lies, and a murderous conspiracy that stretches back into the past churn at the heart of Harlan Coben's blistering new novel, Think Twice. And the audiobook is narrated by his longtime narrator, Steve Weber. Now, if you don't know about Steve, Steve gives each character distinct voices and accents, making this a more immersive listen. Make sure to check out Think Twice by Harlan Coben. And thanks again to Hachette Audio for sponsoring this episode. We'll get into some of the historical stuff before we look at the stories themselves. I was noticing, too that you and I read it around the same age-ish for, mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes. Interesting because it also, that age we were when we were in our early 20s or so, there's a real gap in representation of people in that age here. There's there's kids and then there's like middle to upper 20s and older. Not a lot yeah. of old people, but a few older characters, but there are not a lot of teenagers, not people in college. Um, so it's there is a gap in the middle of the kind of spectrum of ages you might expect mm-hmm. if, you know, if you've got a standard distribution curve of ages, which I think is important in telling too. And I think is a meaningful strategy on Lahiri's part, but also reflects where she was in her life, where she was in the life of Indian migration um, in the U.S. Maybe let's start. This isn't on the notes, but I was looking this up because, you know, there's a, there's a point in the, let's see, uh, third, second story. When Mr. Perzada comes came to dine, and maybe a little background here, a lot of the stories are set around university towns. Lahiri herself grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. Her father was a librarian at Brown. Um, so she knew this world of academically adjacent India, Pakistani Americans who were first generation, maybe young second generation, academically inclined, upwardly mobile. But there's a moment in that where the main character's parents that um, the main character is a girl, I think eight or 10, somewhere in those ages, uh, Dora. Mm-hmm. Um, excuse me. Um, Lila, Alilias, pardon me. I'm looking at the wrong name. Dora's her friend. Remembers her parents going through the phone book uh-huh. and looking for people who has a quote unquote Indian name and just cold calling them, inviting them for dinner, right? Because there's so few of them that they can tell. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, that, that you wouldn't do that now in Cambridge or New York. There's so many Pakistani Indian Americans. What is the history of mig- immigration to the U.S. from India, Pakistan? Well, apparently in 1965, there was a Naturalization Immigration Act that really loosened restrictions on non-European 
immigration to America. And Lahiri herself was part of, her parents were part of that first wave. Before 1965, only about 2,000 Indian or Pakistanis came into the U.S. a year to immigrate long-term. After 1965, it was 40,000. So we're right at the cusp of flood. Not flood is strong, but a huge increase, 20-fold increase in the number of Indians and Pakistanis coming to the U.S. And you know, green card visas eventually become naturalized too. So it's a seminal moment in this particular cultural history of Indian Americans and Pakistani Americans in the U.S. And you can feel that in the stories. That mm-hmm. this, we're, you're right at a liminal edge to uh, Kakutani. I guess I read a Kakutani <laughs> review, so I have to say liminal. But you're really at a, at a cusp where this is the front wave of a major cultural shift. Now you go to la- a lot, many major American cities, and there are thriving, giant, bustling uh, Indian and Pakistani communities that just didn't exist at the time that uh, Lahiri is writing about, which is the, the late 60s and early 70s primarily, it seems to me. Um, and you can see, it, and it crops up in a whole different way. They can't find the ingredients for the food they want. You know, food's a mm-hmm. huge pl- part of this book, but you're looking for mustard oil to put with coriander, whatever it is. They have to go to special shops. They can't get fresh fish. There's no dedicated um, Indian uh, grocery stores, which in New York and New Jersey especially you can find all over the place now. So that's another really interesting part of this is these are sort of cultural pioneers in a lot of ways for Indians and Pakistanis coming to the U.S., which I found really interesting as well. Um, anything else you know, to say about that, Rebecca? I think it's really, I think it's really interesting that, well, one thing that I love about this book is how, like how quiet the stories are mm-hmm. and how Lahiri sets up these lives as ordinary lives. Like yeah. there are some interesting things. There are some painful things. There are some surprising things that happen on the page, but there's not a lot of like fairy dust, razzle dazzle, look at me stuff mm-hmm. that happens in the writing or in the characters. And I think that's one of the things that makes the book really work, that there's an alternate universe version of these stories that really like hangs a lantern on how pioneering and first wave these characters are um but it's more powerful the little tiny details like the one that you're describing there that make it clear how how they are the pioneers how they're walking into a place where they don't have a pre-existing community um how you know like one of the characters in the final story the third and final continent the narrator of that piece learns about and he's he's immigrating in 1964 he learns about what to expect in the u.s Mm -hmm. he's going to attend mit by reading a book about america on the trip on the way over (laughs) and it just tells him like which side of the road that we drive on and it recommends that he stay at the YMCA and like that that she just presents it as matter of fact and the characters take it as matter of fact that they're doing this extraordinary thing by moving somewhere completely foreign um, and starting with zero community and very few resources in many cases they can't get the food that they want like this is a difficult life experience to have and Lahiri's characters are so matter of fact about it and she presents it so quietly that I think makes it makes the punch even more powerful yeah and then also there are two stories set um, well, three stories that are set in India itself, two of them don't figure, include Western characters at all, which are, I think, worth talking about. Mm-hmm. As they are different, meaningfully, in ways that are interesting, but you know, the composition is largely set in the U.S., largely about first, second generation Indian, Pakistani Americans, and then the ways they intersect with you know, newness, new experiences on their part too. Okay. I think that's, I think that's enough as sort of general preamble. Let's do some history. Lahiri herself. So this book came out in 1999. Lahiri was born in 1967. So she was uh, 32 when it came out. She apparently had been writing short stories for a long time. She studied, she had an MA in creative writing at Boston university. She was also working on a PhD in Renaissance studies, which we'll talk about a little bit later because it's influenced sort of the, the later portions of her life um, and her artistic and, and, you know, intellectual work. But a lot of rejections on these short stories, apparently, in the early days. This is not a story of a 24-year-old, right, mm-hmm. who came out of whatever MFA program and got the big thing and became a thing. She's a later in life. Um, she has other interests. Um, some of the stories were reprinted, uh, or excuse me, originally in some other magazines, some smaller literary magazines. But the, the t- a temporary matter, the first one, the signature one, I think the kind that you would probably put in into any anthology of great American short stories 
was in the New Yorker. So I'm guessing that was her big break whenever they took that. She's had a subsequent relationship with the New Yorker, publishing a lot of things, some of her nonfiction, which there's long pieces of apparently about food that have appeared in the New Yorker that I've never read, which I need to get my hands on. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing that struck me now. Came out in 1999. I think, you know, we don't know a lot. We, we can't ever tell much unless it's publicized about advances. And usually that's only if there's a big one. But you can tell something here. This was a soft cover original, Rebecca, which is oh. which I looked up because I like I remember there was a soft you know, cover and there was a hard cover later. But it there was it was originally a soft cover. The sticker price was twelve bucks, <laughs> and then they came out with a hard cover after it won the Pulitzer. Interesting. So I so that's really fascinating. I it think. is. I missed that in my research, mm. but I definitely bought it from one of those like notable paperback tables yeah. in a Barnes and Noble at the time that. I read it. Uh, yeah, the fact that it was a paperback original is a good indicator. The publisher was probably not spending a whole lot of money on this. Not a lot of money in debut short story collections no. in general. And there were not a lot of people publishing short story mm. collections in 1999 who were writing about other cultures and yeah. getting big publishing deals in the U.S. So I, I think this was not expected to go as nearly as big no. as it did. And... When it was published, it was kind of actually not a big deal. Like no. the the early reviews are good, but not amazing. They're not glowing. Um, Kakutani in the New York Times said that um, Lahiri is a writer of uncommon elegance and poise and that with Interpreter of Maladies, she's made a precocious debut. Um, if you have not read all the stories, there are some spoilers in that review. Um, the New York Times did name it as one of the notable books of the year, but Publishers Weekly didn't give it a star. Kirkus didn't even review it. That's wild. Mm-hmm. They review everything now. But, right. Yeah. yeah, Kirkus didn't even review it. Um, it didn't make Amazon's or Publishers Weekly's uh, top 100 list of mm. best-selling books in 1999 or in 2000 after it won the Pulitzer. Um, but now, over time, it has sold more than 15 million copies worldwide. I over couldn't the believe that number years. when you put that in there. I, that's, right? That's an unbelievable number. And here I would like is, to know more about that. Can I? Do you think? I mean, it's been published in a bunch of different languages. Do you think it sold a bunch in India? I have no idea. I'd love to oh, know. Oh, I don't know. You know, it remains on Oprah's top books list, yeah. and it was a book that Oprah highlighted. And I think that that's probably where it got a lot of its juice. Mm-hmm. Um, these stories are also like excellent literary book club fodder. Like this is, you know, not it, these are not like a gossipy fun fiction no. pieces, but for a serious book club um, who that's actually going to like read the stories. I think there's a lot of material there. Probably the paperback format benefited it at some point as well. But really interesting that this like it didn't get its legs from winning the Pulitzer. It was not a critical darling before it won the Pulitzer. Um Maybe I would I didn't go back, but we should have gone back to those to 2000 and read some commentary about like, what did people think when it won the Pulitzer in 2000? I did look look to see because I have a Publishers Weekly digital subscription. I thought maybe I can go back in the archives and take a look and they're accessible in different ways. I just I just ran out of time. Mm. It's a note for me for next time to look because I'd love to know the sales curve. I'm guessing it's a combination of the Pulitzer, Oprah and then word of mouth. This kind of book, once you read that first story, especially Mm -hmm. which we'll talk about, you're going to pass it on to other people who like books. You just don't as I was looking at what was in Amazon's bestsellers from 1999, like this was the height of mm. Oprah Book Club reading. Um, in the bestsellers of that year were Memoirs of a Geisha, White Oleander, The Reader, The Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood, The Poisonwood Bible, and many others. I read all of those yeah. because Oprah was talking about them. Um, I don't know how I first became aware of Interpreter of Maladies. It very well could have been Oprah as well but interesting to think about that as the publishing sort of popular literary context that this Commercial book came out into lit fic i mean really yeah. the the height of it i would say mm-hmm. lit fic you know has been going on since the modernism really but as giant book club million plus selling titles i think you're right this was really the height of it before I don't, genre took off in a meaningful way you know these are massively popular crossover. I mean, Memoirs of a Geisha is historical fiction, right? Why Oleander is like literary crime. The reader is lit fic, Divine Secrets mm-hmm. of the Gaia Sister. That's, did we have chick lit now? I mean, that's what that is, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's fair. Poisonwood Bible is literary fiction, but they all crossed over, become giant 
successes. Really, it really does feel like a different era. It's 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 one of those literary eras. Like I lived through this, but it feels like of a different time and place. Yeah. I don't even know what equivalent list would look like in I, 2019. There wouldn't I be don't one. Either. There isn't one. I don't. Yeah. There's not one that's like this. This is 1999. Was just like a hell of a time for literary. Did fiction. every? Do you think every one of those books outsold? Out, would sell outsell every literary book or every fiction book this year except for Crawdads? Oh, probably. Like Crawdads is one, and then the, like these are like two, three, four, five, six, seven in order or yeah. something like that. I would, I would guess. You I know, would and guess so too. I think readers' experience with this book is probably, and as you were saying, word of mouth, the thing that has driven its long-term success. It has 148,000 ratings on Goodreads mm. and an average rating of 4.14 stars. Like. An average rating of over four stars when you have that many ratings and the book is 20 years old is really uncommon and very incredible. So like that, and I think that also speaks to the fact that these stories stand up, that you can pick this book up in 2019 with zero previous knowledge of Jhumpa Lahiri, um, no idea of what you're getting into and have a wonderful reading experience. When's the Pulitzer... The hardback edition comes out. They're out of copies, essentially, of the soft cover. They release a hardcover, charge 23 bucks for it. That's what I'm talking about, publishing. That is what we call striking where the iron is hot. I, don't rec- I, can't, recall, I can't recall anything like that. And, and sort of our book riot, doing this job lifetime, a soft cover that then gets reissued. It's, it's second and third printings are in hardcovers for twice the amount of money. What we see now, typically, is a long hardcover. You know, Dan Brown, John mm-hmm. Green's. These, the things that sell, they keep them in hardcover for a long time. In hindsight, you would have thought they would have done those Fifty Shades of Grey, right? Were the second two books, oh, or like uh-huh. they would have made hardcover editions later. But maybe like you know, we're not going to screw with this. Just keep <laughs> it in soft cover. We're we're, we're we're selling we're selling them like ice in the Sahara. Do not screw with it. I'm I, I don't I don't know mm-hmm. if you guys out there know of a, an equivalent um, publishing move of, of guess moving up format. I don't even know what the term would be, uh, in the, in the, while a a title's in front list, I'd sure like to hear about that, but a really remarkable move. 15 million copies worldwide. Listen, that is, you don't have to do anything else money. And I think that's relevant probably after we Uh we talk about the book itself, what Lahiri does with her later life, you know, what she's done since then. Um, she doesn't need money, doesn't need money at all. Uh, 600,000 copies apparently in the first 24 months I found um, Mm -hmm. in print. So it did sell very well, but it has sold consistently and hugely ever since. This is one of the situations I'm putting a pin in this. I'd love to know how many copies did it sell last week? Like, you know, is it a Morrison situation where it sold 2,000 copies last week? Doesn't sound like a lot, but if you've been selling 2,000 a week for 10 years, it's just so many copies. I think that's really important because this is also a book that appears on syllabi. Yes. And like, and that's how Toni Morrison, that's one of the ways that Toni Morrison's books continued to sell like very steadily for years and years and years is that there was perpetual demand for them from students and for very good reason. But like this book is being taught in like intro to fiction courses. Mm-hmm. in American lit courses. Um, I'm pretty sure that I read it a second time or read por- like portions of it at some point in a college class, or maybe that was that was the namesake. Um, but she's on syllabi still. Yeah. And so those sort of steady backlist sales, I think, are probably still going on. Like, I will not be surprised if we do this episode again in 20 years to see how well mm-hmm. Interpreter of Maladies holds up after 40 years. And we're talking about Joomba Lahiri ha- having sold 40 million copies of this yeah, book since I, I, it, it's just- it's it just holds up it's selectable it's just, like you can pull out that you can mm-hmm. pull out any of the one of the short stories you want to it's a bunch of different sections i think probably as there's more courses about different kinds of experiences multicultural american fiction especially in the short story form and really well i'll save this but the the first short story especially is a pretty conventional, great literary short story in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about. So you can do a lot of things you would have done with, like, say, a John Updike short story in an intro to fiction class or a short or a short fiction writing class in 1990, but really doing it now, later, um, with something that's just not Updike. You know, it's somebody else. So anyway, that, I guess that's enough preamble. But before we dive into the stories themselves, let's do a sponsor. Oh. Today's episode is brought to you by The Safe Keep by Yael Vanderwalden. 
This new debut is an exhilarating, twisting tale of desire, suspicion, and obsession between two women staying in the same house in the Dutch countryside during the summer of 1961. It's a powerful exploration of the legacy of World War II and the darker parts of our collective past. It's mysterious, sophisticated, sensual, and infused with intrigue, atmosphere, and sex. The Safe Keep is a brilliantly plotted and provocative debut novel you won't soon forget. Also, it's literary enough if you like literary fiction while still being spicy enough for certain corners of book talk. You know the quarters I'm talking about. And while at first there's a cool detachment to these characters and this story, the heat builds and builds until it explodes into a tale of twisted desires, histories, and homes, and the unexpected shape of revenge. Make sure to check out the new book, and thanks again to The Safe Keep by Yale Vanderwilden for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of When We Were Silent by Fiona McPhillips. So Louise Manson is the newest student at Highfield Manor, Dublin's most exclusive private school. Behind its granite walls are high-arched alcoves, an oak-lined library, and the dark secret Lou has come to expose. So Lou's working-class status makes her the consummate outsider. That is, until she's befriended by some of her beautiful and wealthy classmates. But after Lou attempts to bring the school's secret to light, her time at Highfield ends with a lifeless body sprawled at her feet. Then, 30 years later, Lou gets a shocking phone call. A high-profile lawyer is bringing a lawsuit against the school, and he needs Lou to testify. Lou will have to confront her past and discover, once and for all, what really happened at Highfield. Powerful and compelling, When We Were Silent is a thrilling story of exploitation, privilege, and retribution with themes of revenge, love, power, and secrets. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of When We Were Silent by Fiona McPhillips for sponsoring this episode. Okay. Do you want to start with the first one? I mean, well, let's do this. Let's do this. Can Do you we want me to tell order you? them somehow? Ooh. I mean, a temporary matter is clearly the best one from from a structure point of view. You know, it has the most tension. I think it has a payoff. I think it's. I don't think there's any doubt that it's classically the best one. So let's put that to the side mm-hmm. for a second. All right. How about after that? After that, it seems to me they're pretty even on the whole. I but think. Where do, where do you come down on? I think after that, they are pretty even on the whole. I do think the title story, Interpreter of Maladies, is the next best mm. one um, because of the like the very specific kind of interaction that the main character living in India has with the um, Indian American folks who have been living in America coming back as tourists and interacting. And it's like that. It's the closest to like clash of cultures that we get yeah. in the book, but also the way that Lahiri does it again, it's like quiet and heartbreaking in a couple of ways. Um, devastating in a few other ways Uh, and i think that it's that's all very intentional and also that the use of that title as the title of the book is very intentional to convey Mm -hmm. that like what happens in this story people who are from the same like home culture um for lack of a better term but who have very different experiences of it and different geographic locations that inform those experiences of what they understand their identity as indian people to be um comes to the fore the most in the interpreter of maladies story yeah. um, and so the use of that as the title uh, like the title track um, makes a lot of sense to me i think that's the second best one do you have um is there any is there a story here that's at the bottom of the power mm. rankings for you anything that's i snoozy? think in hindsight knowing what we knew know now especially the end of it the treatment of bb haldar is a tough hang same the mm-hmm. the, um we should say now we haven't spoiled anything, but we're probably going to. Yeah. <laughs> if, you if you haven't got, and the end of that one, and it's it's it goes along with the real Durwan, which both of those are set in India, about Indian communities. Well, here herself, uh, her parents really cared about keeping up her connection to her family and to Indian culture, so they'd go back to Calcutta all the time, and so these are stories that are cre- clearly comes from Lahiri's experience of being in India, um, and both of them are sort of feeble like. 
it seems like there, there's kind of a message or it, it's a little bit more of a, it seems like more of an allegory or a message kind of a story. So a, the, a real Darwan, um, Bori Ma, is an older woman mm-hmm. who says after the 1947 um, independence of India and the fissure of India and Pakistan had to leave, as she claims, though no one really believes her, a, a, a life of wealth and of connection and you know basically a higher status. And basically, she's an in-house maid for an apartment building slash complex, and through no real fault of her own, is you know kicked out. Um, she finds herself even in a lower station at the end of it. Has something to do with caste and upward mm-hmm. mobility. And then the treatment of Bibi Haldar. There's a woman who's thirty years old. Um, her parents are died. She's sort of been kept as. Like she's got guardians. Is that your understanding yeah. of what the relationship to the people she lives with? Yes. And then she has, it sounds like epilepsy as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. She has seizures, some sort of episodes, which keeps her from being married. And everyone says, the doctor even says, you know, the cure here is to get married, but maybe not even just married, maybe just to have sex. Yeah, it sounds it's like. that good old hysteria treatment. Hysteria treatment. And then basically the 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 couple she's staying with have a, Daughter it's her of their cousin. Own. The, her cousins. Yeah, her yeah. cousin and his wife. Have a daughter of their own. They're very worried that whatever she has is catching. Um, they leave her on her own. She lives in a storage room, kind of selling their remnants of their store. Apparently is raped mm-hmm. and has a child and is cured. And that's the end of the story. Tough. Tough. Though. Yeah. Tough. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one, I think... Maybe needs some, <laughs> need some <laughs> updating now. I don't even know. At the time, it seems rough. But yeah. now, especially, I'm like, you know, rape is a solution well, and, to absolute, yeah, epilepsy. The, I don't know that that's... There's a chance it's something else, but that's the plain text reading of yeah, it. Yeah, and there's a feeling that something sinister might be going on yes. there. Like the the cousin that she lives with, um, he and his wife have a baby. Um, the baby gets sick. They blame it on BB's presence that, um, that she must have infected the child in some way. And eventually like the townspeople, there's a plural narrator of that story was, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And they talk about how we, you know, like we turned on Haldar and stopped going to his shop. Um, yeah. and eventually he closes up shop, but the time frame, like he closes up shop in December and in April is when the town, people or the narrators find bb and the, and she's pregnant and she's about four months pregnant so also she's yes. about as pregnant as the amount of time that the cousin and his wife have been gone and it's it feels like there's been something murky happening there in the family like did her was it her cousin that raped her like it's all very uncomfortable yeah and, and there is you're right there's circumstantial evidence that the cousin is the father of of the baby but the us the the multi the mm-hmm. the plural second person narr- or first person narrator assumes it's rape, but I guess it doesn't have to be um it could be that if he was told that or they were told mm-hmm. that you know mm-hmm. sex cures this thing, maybe he you know he's trying to protect his new daughter right. maybe he was trying something maybe it was romantic, maybe it was physical and- I don't know, but the plain text narrator's point of view says they assume it's um, yeah assault of and we kind. also don't know the time frame of that no, like the notion that sex would cure women of hysteria is pretty old yes um yes so that i think that's an interesting question there how about any do you have just like a story that delights mm. you because i found that i really loved this blessed house i like this bless- it's the lightest of the stories i think mm-hmm. right i mean it's interesting. I have zero interest in one of the most fertile grounds of sort of um, lit fic short story land, which is infidelity. Like how mm-hmm. many short stories have we read about <laughs> it? I, I have zero. And there's a short story here about infidelity. Mm-hmm. That's probably my, uh, we probably won't spend more than a couple minutes talking about it. It's actually called sexy. But the arranged marriage is such an interesting emotional, psychological and character set piece that these arranged or de facto arranged marriages. Yeah. Okay, so maybe it's not arranged, but you know someone for two months, tough. And the blessed house is a, I, I do love these. We didn't really know each other, but now we're coming together and we've come to some sort of understanding. So that one's like this. The third and final continent mm-hmm. um, is like that. 
Uh, there's like I guess those two especially yeah and there's like a little whimsy in this blessed house that I loved that the um, the wife character her name is Twinkle um, she is apparently not like a very good housewife at all they keep discovering Christian art and like Jesus figurines (laughs) and all kinds of campy Christian stuff including like a Virgin Mary statue in their yard in the house that she's that they've moved into and Sanjeev is mortified and wants to get rid of it but she's like delighted which you I just could relate so much to this like (laughs) you can picture these people right like they move into a house they find all this weird shit sorry we'll have to bleep that like they find all this weird stuff in the attic and hidden behind old drawers and it's all these like increasingly strange pieces of Christian art and paraphernalia and she delights in this and is like on the phone telling her friends about it like this was a moment where I was like oh today this discovery would get relayed on Instagram you know like it would be every day the Christian Jesus Jesus poster I found of the day. Um, and then they have a cocktail party for all of his fancy friends from the university who are like, he thinks they're going to be mortified and that he'll have to keep explaining that they're not Christians. And he does have to keep explaining it, but everyone is delighted by both these discoveries and by Twinkle. And it leads to this like half drunken plan to go up into the attic and like plunder for what else they can find and it just feels so possible to me like like, you know you've been to those like small gatherings where people have like just a half a drink enough to do something silly (laughs) like that um and that Sanjeev like how he really wrestles with with himself to make sense of this woman who's his wife that he's known for four months and his like the competing impressions of what he thinks people are going to think about him and what he's worried about and then what they actually seem to care about and take away from the interactions with him and his wife like that's another angle on interpreting culture that Lahiri offers is what these characters are concerned that their American contemporaries are going to think about and then what they actually do discovering what they actually do think about and how to bridge that divide. I think she does that really well. She does that very well. And also that there's multiple experiences of the immigration, you know, immigration experience for that one twinkle. She's a dreamer. She's kind of wild at heart. She's kind of silly um fits she's she's really captures the imagination of all of the friends that come over right like he's he's sort of struck by everyone thinks she's amazing i thought she was sort of a weird layabout and i wasn't really sure about her he sees her through their eyes and really she shines i mean there's not Mm -hmm. not a mistake that her name is twinkle i think lahiri knows what she's doing there and you compare that with mrs sen um who is a older first generation immigrant a different short story sorry i'm skipping short stories a little bit and she's really having a hard time. Um, the short story is called Mrs. Sends. It's about basically um, a woman who's, she's, it's, she's re- I, I couldn't believe how young she was. She's only 30 in this particular short story, but she, her heart is still back in Calcutta. Mm-hmm. And she can't, she can't immigrate spiritually, sort of, sort of speak. She's always, she's waiting for news of back home. She takes in sort of as an after-school daycare um the son of someone her husband works with, I believe is how they, they hook up. I, I think so. Yeah. Exactly. And she's just kind of trying to recreate their small life together. Um, she and her husband in this space, but her heart never really comes over. Whereas Twinkle really blooms in mm-hmm. an American setting. So some are going to take it differently than others. I think that's where Lahiri is especially good in both cases. You have mismatched people and they learn they, they serve as service foils for each other um she's at her best i think when you get in the third and final continent the narrator who's you know a young professional yeah. coming over to the u.s and sort of is the border of this 103 year old woman mm-hmm. who's like kind of senile but also kind of great yeah and they st- and they strike up a relationship um you get it in in well even in sexy where um miranda for the afternoon has to babysit um, a son of a friend of her who's going through a messy divorce. Um, you get that in Interpreter of Maladies where you get the, the chauffeur, the Indian chauffeur in India giving basically tours to Americans coming over and the wife of a family basically confides in him <laughs> that mm-hmm. one of the children is um, illegitimate uh, and the husband doesn't know it. In those moments of actual culture clashes, um, 
I think is is the most fun, interesting, and moving of the story, which I think is weird considering that I think that Temporary Matter is the best story, but I also think it's kind of the the least germane to what Lahiri does best, strangely. I don't know how to reconcile that. I think it's that a temporary matter is the most universal of the stories. Like, mm. it matters the least in that story that the characters are Indian, that they... I can't remember in that piece if they are immigrants or if they're first generation themselves. Um, it Or that they live in this university town. Like, the... Mm-hmm. The into the interior world of that story and their emotional life, I think, is pretty relatable, um, regardless. And the rest of the stories are very closely defined by the particulars of the people and the place that they're from and the cultures that they're experiencing. And um, and that's it is a really interesting contrast. I hadn't thought about it in that way before. Where like Mrs. Sens is like that. I think is the saddest story in the piece and maybe the most difficult to read by that standard of um, she's, she's like sobbing, talking about how everyone over in India thinks that she's living this wonderful, glamorous life. Mm. Meanwhile, her days are defined by trying to get up the nerve to drive down the street to the fishmonger. Right. And when she finally does, it's a disaster. Um, there's just anxiety and fear and clinging to their memory of home, um, trying to adapt, but not being able to, like, as you were saying, not being able to do it spiritually, not being able to like really allow herself to live in her new life. And the tension that that creates in her marriage like serves to highlight the differences in the way that she has adapted versus the way that her husband's adapted. And I think you're right that Lahiri does this very well with characters and intimate relationships serving as foils for each other. Um, But that's a, like, that's a story about a very specific experience and a temporary matter is one of those sort of broadly applicable ones. Yeah. You could switch out the characters names with John and Jane Doe and switch out the food Mm -hmm. and the story works on its own terms, I think. Yeah. In, in hindsight. I mean, I didn't read it with those. Maybe there's some things I'm not remembering now, but their racial and ethnic identity doesn't really figure um, in that story at all outside of their names. So that's, that's I don't know. I, I find that's interesting. Maybe, you know, as a thin end of the wedge to get someone to read a whole collection about Indian immigrants in 1999, that is a kind of useful... It's a Entree. it's a really good hook. I mean, the yeah. way that I have been telling people about, I guess now we'll get into a temporary matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, the way that I've been describing this story to people for a good portion of the last, I don't know, 17 years since I read it is um, there's this young married couple in their neighborhood. They're going to have rolling. They get noticed they're going to have rolling brownouts because of some sort of utility work for the week. Things have not been going well in their marriage. And each night when the lights go out to pass the time, they talk with each other and decide to each tell each other a secret that they've never told before and that over the course of the nights in the dark the secrets that they reveal escalate from sort of minor infractions against each other Mm. to major emotional revelations um like that's a really good pitch for a short story it's It's also like lacking the primary context of the actual story which Mm -hmm. i was horrified by when i came to it but i think is explained by the fact that i was so young when i read this i hadn't been married i hadn't i don't think i'd even lived with a partner at that point yet they are in a bad place in their relationship because they've had a child who was stillborn stillborn months ago and they're coming out of trauma Mm-hmm. Um, or still are very much in the trauma and unable to cross the divide of that grief and find each other again. Um, mm-hmm. And there are these like so sad details of like they don't have real candles in the house the first night. So they're lighting up birthday candles to put between mm. them while they eat this dinner that has been like reheated and they've, they're not connecting. And she, presents this as like well when the power used to go off when i was a child visiting india that's what it is um we would like we would tell secrets in the dark so why don't we do that now and it seems like a reach to connect with him and there's this like hopefulness um, and they confess these tiny things to each other that then over the course of the next couple of nights she eventually confesses that she 
wants to leave him and in fact is prepared to and has found an apartment and is going mm. um and i think that like the arc of that that you raise some hope and they feel some connection and like he goes and buys good candles so that they have yeah. a nice experience the next couple of nights and that it ends with such a wallop i was like oh boy you know the mid-30s person who's been married for Whoa. a long time <laughs> really understands this much differently than i did at 21 um Still it's a great it's a great parallel structure where the narrator and thus you think that them having these nightly confessional dinners is mm-hmm. a reaching back towards each other, kind of a yeah. re imagination or a re meeting, so to speak, where for her, the, the, the wife, it's a farewell. It's a you know, it's a parting ceremony as much as anything. And that when you realize what the turn really is and then he reta- he retaliates with her truth telling with with a truth that mm-hmm. is you know, it, it's a truth, but he probably shouldn't yeah. have told it um, as a emotional knife in the front, I guess, is what it was. But you also understand at the same time, it's really complicated. It, it is richer to read as an older person mm-hmm. um, with longstanding relationships to, you know, factor into how you're thinking about what yeah, these people and, are doing and why they're doing it the way they're doing it. And the question that's on the page, too, of did she suggest this so that she could work up to revealing to him that she's leaving? Um, Is it sort of, is it a manipulative move to like to guide their discussions in this way so that she can ultimately tell him this? Or is she maybe looking for some moment of Mm -hmm. connection in that first one? And how just how confused these difficult, dark moments of intimate relationships can be, I think comes through there. The last line, Jeff they wept, uh, they wept together for the things they now knew is just like tough. it's like the headline of adulthood <laughs> uh, yeah yeah it's tough it's tough and then i mean that it starts there i think it's important that the the collection starts there but that's not where it ends because i think the line mm-hmm. that ends the the third and final continent yep. which i had in front of me which i mean at some point will certainly go on my instagram don't 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 uh, don't doubt that for a second is really like even though it was ordinary something like this i'm doing it somewhat from memory he still couldn't believe that yeah. it was true basically. it's in my that this it's in, ordinary life yeah. of this narrator who's come from india he started a family has become middle upper middle class in all the conventional ways is to him a wonder um is really powerful in yeah. its own way and i think is a reminder for immigrants and for experiences of all kind that there is a there is a delight, there is a power, there is a transcendence in sort of an ordinary life lived with your eyes open, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, I guess what we ask from short stories is more than really any other artistic form is to give us little glimpses into the things we know to be true and know to be around us, but that we sort of forget to look at somehow. Yeah, the I had that last line in my notes also, but the whole chunk of the last paragraph yeah, is to, really beautiful. I've remained in this new world for nearly 30 years. I know that my achievement is quite ordinary. I am not the only man to seek his fortune far from home, and certainly I am not the first. Still, there are times I am bewildered by each mile I have traveled, each meal I have eaten, each person I have known, each room in which I have slept. As ordinary as it all appears, there are times when it is beyond my imagination. Hmm. Whew, I'm getting, that choked me up. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's powerful too. Because, you know, one thing in that line, that's not specific to any particular immigration experience, but it is. it does speak to anyone who is no longer living close to where they came from. Mm-hmm. In my own experience, I think, is within the continental United States. But ba- there, there are moments that resonate with me in this story about starting a life in a new city around a university, you know, being a young couple and you know doing things like using birthday candles as lights with the power right. goes not in that situation but these moments of transition and change and dislocation and relocation and getting habituated to a place that is not your home is not your point of origin a lot of that is applicable and it's used the specifics of these particular people's experiences and in indian migration experience in particular but trying to figure out how to take the bus in a new town, try to figure out how, what your social circle is going to like, how you're going to share a life with someone. These are things that apply to a lot of different people and the specificity of it gives it, you know, flavor um, and character, but she does it in such a way that you can relate to it. If you've moved at all, if yeah. you are not where you started, you will find something that feels homologous to your own situation. Yeah. I think it's also, 
very much speaking to just kind of the condition of being human that so mm. much of life is doing things you didn't imagine or couldn't have imagined dealing with things you didn't imagine or couldn't have imagined that like we never end up in the places that we thought we were going to or the places that we planned to even when you take very careful and deliberate steps as many of these characters mm. do to try to set up lives for themselves like you know life happens and yeah. what makes good fiction but i think you're right especially good short stories work is that ability to capture like someone's entire humanity yeah. or someone's entire life or experience through the lens of a specific moment in their time and these stories are about people dealing with sort of cross-cultural issues and questions of identity and assimilation but that notion like i think any of us could look back on any you know any however long our lives have been at this point and be like this mm -hmm. is a lot of this looks ordinary and also a lot of it is beyond my imagination right yeah that's <laughs> or right. beyond anything i guessed for myself and just that she captures that is amazing that she captured it in stories that she wrote in her late 20s and early 30s is i think really incredible like this is someone's first book is just a hell of an accomplishment well i guess it's a good place to talk about sort of the post interpreter of maladies career arc um of lahiri and you know we can play our game of coming out of let, let's say the first let's say you had a chance to buy lahiri stock in um spring of 2001 mm -hmm. right you, you, We've gone through the big wave. You know that Interpretive Maladies is, is a modern, I'm getting used to this confusingly, a contemporary classic, a best-selling contemporary classic. You know, the rarest of things, really, in books <laughs> is to be a best-selling contemporary classic. Your inclination would be to say to buy, right? This is a huge book. This is a really promising author, which means if you know anything about, you know, how publishing works and how sell means at this moment is when you should be selling mm -hmm. because no one follows up a book like I, I couldn't think of an example could you where mm -hmm. someone follows up something like this with anything that's even in the same stratosphere like her subsequent short story collection unaccustomed earth very good the novel namesake very good but they didn't do anything close to this i mean unaccustomed earth debuted as a short story collection in hardcover at number one on the new york times bestseller list just isn't done but still was a come down in terms of sales, acclaim, so on and so forth. I remember that being a very good short story collection. Mm -hmm. Not, it didn't leave the same impression on me as Interpretive Maladies. Maybe it's just because the first, you know, the first punch of the face hurts. Where you know, it makes more of an impression to get um, this particular artistic vision without ever having encountered it before. But uh, you, at any rate, you should sell. Like you should sell. This is maybe a good note for us for Morgan Stern, <laughs> right? Um, and our buy so hold with her. But you should have, you should sell Gillian Flynn after Gone Girl. You sell Alice Bold after Lovely Bones. You sell Catherine Stockett after The Help. You sell you know so you sell all you, you sell um, who wrote what? White Oleander Finch. Is that oh yeah, Oleander? Janet Finch. I was Janet just going to say, and you sell the guy who wrote Memoirs of a Geisha and the yeah, Divine William Secrets Goldman. of the Yaya. You sell Jonathan Safran Foer yeah. after everything is illuminated. Mm -hmm. You sell Dave Eggers after a heartbreaking work. You just sell, 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 sell. So that having been said, um, that's what you should always do. Let's just you know take it for what it is: is that you should have sold. <laughs> what, what do you want to say about Lahiri's post interpreters interpreter career? I think it's bold that. She continued to publish. I'm always impressed by the like mm. the chutzpah of writers who come out of the gate with such a huge debut, especially when right. it's unexpectedly huge, and are able to like, get over what I imagine to be the like anxiety of trying to live up to that. Mm -hmm. um, like there's because they have to know that it's very unlikely that lightning will strike twice right. um that she you know was continuing to write she had new things to say i also remember really enjoying unaccustomed earth um i read the namesake later mm. and i didn't i mean i thought it was like good it was a good novel but it wasn't something that um yeah. that i've had any desire to return to or that like marked me in some way and then i didn't pick up lowland um i feel like my relationship with her is so defined by mm. interpreter of maladies. Like if I reread this book every year, that would be enough jubilee yeah. <laughs> in my life. Um, and she's made some interesting choices since then. I think if we had done the logical thing and sold Lahiri after mm -hmm. interpreter of maladies, we would have been doing right by our money there. Yeah. Um, by our portfolio. Yeah. Um, 
so her, now again it's i didn't know this about her because i read her um most recent book in english which she originally wrote in italian called in other words which is about learning italian and learning to write in italian which was interesting but her what she, she seems to be interested in now is italy like she did, got mm-hmm. a phd in renaissance studies um focusing on italian theater and the renaissance which is pretty deep cuts for academic studies, even even by humanity standards. She now lives in Rome. She kind of doesn't care about American arts and letters, which is fine um, for our purposes. From where we sit, I, I think a loss. Um, but I don't even know how to say this. But her most recent novel hasn't even been translated into English yet, uh, called Dova Mitrovo, which I have no idea what that means. I couldn't even figure. I can even find anything about what the synopsis is. It came out last year in Italy. She seems to be following an artistic path that is unusual for someone who wrote giant selling commercial fiction, could get a book deal and sell hundreds of thousand copies for whatever came out. She did weirdly apparently work on the TV show In Treatment for one season when there was a Bengali <gasps> character. She was a consultant for that. Man, I loved In Treatment. <laughs> um, yeah, I I wouldn't say, you know, it's it's tough. I mean, interpretive malady is such a gift that you can't say that anything after it came out as a disappointment. No. But she just hasn't gone where, you know, I thought I was going to have 10 Lahiri books on my shelf. Mm-hmm. That's what I would have thought after interpretive maladies. And I have three, and they're good, and I'm glad they exist. Um, but I may not get another one, which she's only 52. Yeah. Um, so there could be another chapter or two. But she's got royalties from 15 million copies. She can do whatever she wants, and she can follow whatever path she wants. And clearly, this is the kind of the kind of artistic pursuit you do when you have mm-hmm. get out of jail free money and can follow whatever path you're interested in, which is great. Um, though I have to say, if they, I've, I was told there was a new Lahiri short story collection coming out tomorrow, I'd be thrilled. Yes, I'd be thrilled. It's yeah, still the I, case. I would be thrilled too, and I would love. Ooh, I'm just realizing this as I'm saying it. I want a 20th anniversary edition of Interpreter mm. of Maladies with Lahiri's like notes and prologue and thoughts about this book 20 years later um, because the conversation has and hasn't changed about immigration. Being an immigrant in the United States is probably not very different now or not any easier now than it was 20 years ago. Um, You know, you don't have to scroll through the phone, like the school directory to find other people whose names are similar. We do have the internet, like these short stories updated for the internet is an activity my brain kind of likes. Hmm. Um, But I think that, I think you're right. Like I expected to have more Jhumpa Lahiri. I also would have been fine if Interpreter of Maladies had been the only Jhumpa oh, Lahiri sure. that yeah. we ever had. And I'm glad to see her like paddling her own canoe here. Um, I think it's great when writers hit that place where they have, they don't need to write for the money and they can pursue the thing that is interesting to them rather than trying to replicate critical or commercial success in of a certain kind. Yeah. Yeah. And and let me say, if this Italian book that she wrote came out in English tomorrow, I would read it. Yeah. I'd love to know what, what the heck is going on. Like, what is she interested in? Like, what is <laughs> she doing with that artistic project? In other words, it was like, Italian is interesting. It does something weird to your brain to try to think in a different language. Okay, that's interesting. But like, what's the next thing right. after the thing you were trying to <laughs> like, do she's to get to that She's super interesting and yeah. mysterious. Like, she's a writer that we don't know a whole lot about. No. She doesn't have a big public profile. Um, you know, there aren't like Jhumpa Lahiri um, editorial. Instagrams, yeah, right? No, yeah, right. She's, she's not at festivals. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, they heard of Lahiri at a festival. I'm yeah, not she's not doing the thing that novelists often do now. Of like when she has a book coming out, she's not like writing a bunch of essays for a bunch of mm-hmm. publications about things related to the topic of her novel to try to sell it. Like she, I think, is really changing course in a way that is super interesting and lovely. Um, yeah. I w- would love to. I, I, I'm curious about her and also like your experience at 52 has to be so much bigger than the she experience has kids that are yeah. now teenagers of a 32 sure year old person. So just what is that like to look back at, at these pieces through that lens? Like I assume that if I were to reread this in 20 years, the experience will again be different, which is exactly what you want from good yeah. literature. I think that's a show. This was super interesting. Yeah, this was fun. Makes me want to do it for like a bunch of books I read a, a long time ago, mm-hmm. which we might do. Yeah. We'll and we can tell our friends here that next week's special yes. episode will be Book Nerd Movie Hour with you yes. and Amanda yes. talking about 
The Hunt for Red October. The Hunt for Red October, the movie and the book. Just finished, not just finished, finished last week rereading the book. I have on my calendar a date to watch The Hunt for Red October starring controversial controversial take sean connery in his greatest role and that's that's oh. that's a guy who played originated the movie version of james bond his <laughs> marco ramius his marco ramius destroys 007 i'm sorry double o it's unbelievable his hairpiece alone deserves an academy award they should give a, they should give a special a comment commendation for connery's hairpiece in hunt for october but i'm stepping on my um hot takes for hunt for october so if you want to catch up with hunt for october before that might I suggest not reading the book and just watching the movie? Um, so tell us what you thought about this Interpretive Malady show, podcast at bookriot.com. Rebecca, I'll talk to you tomorrow yes. for an episode that will be released before this one. <laughs> Time is confusing. Which is weird. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Have a good one. 